So I've called this the Minor Prophets, a store of pearls and precious stones, individual collections. It really is, in a sense, what, uh, what Steve is a little bit wary of, of just picking verses here and there. But there surely are some wonderful little gems in there. You know, I'll share with you some of mine, and we might add to those uh, at this stage. But they are. They are just wonderful gems. If you were to get that ring off my finger, which I don't think it's possible at this stage, what you would find inscribed inside is, from BC to MG, Micah 6.8. And if that's Betsy Cameron, my wife. And if you were to get the ring off her finger, it would say from MG to BC, Micah 6 8. That is one of my gems. It was given to me by one of my closest friends, the Reverend Xu Tian Hen, uh, a minister of the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan, many, many years ago. I'll say more about uh, Tian Hen later if we have time. But it's very, very important. You know. Micah 6 8. What is it that the Lord requires of us? Only this do justice, show constant love, and walk in humble fellowship with your God. For Tien Hen, that was a, a summary of the heights of the prophetic tradition. There you have it. So, yes, you can take things out of context, but maybe you can find these verses that are gems that, in some ways, sum it all up. That is it. Amos, another of my gems. That you know the way you sometimes keep gems in a box. They're little individual gems. Amos 5, 23, 24. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. That was the quotation that was so important to Martin Luther King Jr. And brought that aspect of the prophetic tradition alive in that context in the Deep South. It's on his, uh, his memorial tomb in Atlanta, in Sweet Auburn. So very, very important. And then, you know, as you go along and you go through life, you pick up texts. One of my favorites, this would be one of my little collections, would be Zephaniah 3.10. Does anybody know off the top of their head Zephaniah 3.10? It's a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful uh, verse. It says, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worship first, my scattered people will bring me offerings. Cush, of course, refers to sub-Saharan Africa in the biblical world. That was a text that was given to me by Jack Thompson, the former missionary of ours to Malawi. When Jack and I were together, and he was getting me ready to go to Malawi. And it's important because it changed the axis of my understanding. And as Jack pointed out to me, this was a text that became very important to Africans in their journey to embrace Christianity because it wasn't just that something was coming from the West, often in an imperial mode. It was a text that said to Africans who were getting to know Jesus and embrace the gospel and learn the story and the tradition, actually, 
you were a part of this story. From long before, there were people believing in Ireland. Change that whole axis. Another text that I still love, and it still moves me, uh, because it's again related to those years in Malawi, is uh, Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields return no harvest for food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. God makes my feet like those of a deer. God enables me to walk on the high places. It's beautiful poetry. A beautiful image of rich, deep faithfulness in the midst of harsh conditions. Came alive for me in a way that it never could in this country when we lived in Malawi. You had one growing season, and if that growing season was not productive, then you had, at the end of the, 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 the year, a hungry season. And in the midst of that, people lived that out. They were faithful, they lived their lives on a knife edge, and the scriptures came alive. Wonderful. One that, come back to over probably the last five or six years, is in Hosea. Hosea 11, 1 to 11. So that first block of material in Hosea. The picture is just beautiful. It is of God as a tender parent. It's of God raising Ephraim as a child. And Ephraim reaches the stage of being a toddler. And you, some of us will be old enough. Do you remember the little reins that children used to have? And the parents would walk them along. That's the image. It is God with the reins. God talks about the reins of kindness. And God is teaching the child to walk. And of course, the child gets up a bit and the child goes wrong. And the child goes wrong and the parent gets angry. And they're going like this. And there's a real struggle within the heart of God about what to do. It is an immense struggle. If you look at the, uh, at the wider references in the Hebrew, an immense struggle. And then God says this, My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger nor devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a mortal. I will not come in wrath. It's a decommissioning moment for God. He said, I'm not going to go that way anymore. It's amazing. So those are some that I would have as these pearls. And I do think that uh, 
while we can take verses out of context, there are verses that actually just begin to bubble and expand and take you to all sorts of places in the Scripture. That one uh, in Hosea takes me to the angels singing, peace on earth, goodwill to people, in the nativity story. Because sometimes we, we think more in terms of the imagery of the Christmas card than we do of what the Bible the Bible is telling us. The Bible is telling us that, you know, the, the heavenly host that appeared was the war band of heaven. It was God's guerrilla army. And what you had was them being decommissioned. You had the people who had fought with God in various struggles in the Old Testament singing peace on earth. That's why Jesus in part is the prince of peace. So these texts can take you to all sorts of places. But as Steve reminded us you just can't take things individually and out of context. So is there some sense that we can lace these texts together, thread these texts together, and make them a necklace of great price? Can we create coherence and integration? I like the, the theory that says, actually, Part of the reason we have the 12 is this. As you know, the, uh, in their original form, the Jewish people didn't have a Bible, even it was falling apart. Bound together, they had the scrolls. So you had the great scrolls of Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And they weren't going to put Obadiah on a scroll by itself. So they kind of looked at them and said, we'll bundle the 12 together and put them on a scroll so that you have kind of uh, scrolls of equal length in the tradition. It's a kind of just putting things together. So you get the 12 as a kind of a, a rag bag of texts. But there is a broader perspective to all of that. Think of the way the Jewish people approached it. The Jewish people did not think in terms of history books. They t thought in terms of the former prophets. And the former prophets were uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Think of the story that those texts told. They really told the story from Joshua of entering the land and they ended with the exit from the land the exile that's the story that's the story that they told the story from arrival to expulsion the latter prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah Ezekiel and the book of the twelve are the story that knows that the expulsion is coming and that the judgment of God 
is irreversible and will happen because that's what the prophetic word was. So they are from that point to the return. So you can see a balance there, a shaping, a coherence. Do you know the, the great writer of the 20th century, Arthur Kessler? One of his books was called Darkness at Noon. That's the exile for Israel. It is that darkness that comes. That absolute trauma, that abyss, that upheaval. That's the darkness at noon. Another book that he wrote was Arrivals and Departures. And the story together is about the arrival in the land, the departure from the land, the return to the land. In, in modern scholarship, there have been really very significant moves over the last 20, 30 years to say, actually, there is coherence in all of the canon and within the Book of the Twelve. The scholar that I suppose, I suppose is most associated with that would be an American called Brevard Childs and his operation in canonical criticism. But then the question arises, whose canon are you using to create this shape? Are you creating uh, your shape from the Christian canon? And you can do that. Or from the Hebrew canon? Or from the Septuagint? Or any of the other canons that exist? And that's a question that was raised by uh, Robert Carroll in particular. who uh, was born in Dublin, I believe, a, a Jeremiah scholar. Beyond that, Again, more recently, scholars have said, you know, there are phrases that recur in the book of the Twelve. There are catchphrases, there are words, there are sentences. There is a shared vocabulary. There is allusion between the different voices, between the different prophets, between the different writers. There is quotation, there's referencing, but altering what has been referenced. People have said, you, you can find coherence here. But then others have looked at it and said, really, that's arguing too far. This is much more just coincidence as people uh, circle around different themes. On the back, what you have is some sort of rough scheme that as you, I hope, Go back to the book of the twelve and read them and steep yourself in them and make yourself aware of the resonances. And I hope that at this stage, when you read uh, some of the lines, you'll say, oh, that reminds me of, even me, that reminds me of, you know, and you'll begin to work your way through them. So this gives you a kind of a framework. And it's done on an historical basis, but also on a theological basis. Uh, and really what we're saying is, in the earliest of these prophets, although there is other material there, the focus is on sin. And then in the next block, as things 
begin to unwind and unroll and go wrong for Israel. There is an emphasis on the punishment that arrives. And then when things move back towards the land and the exile is coming to an end, there's more of a focus on restoration. And then you have what I've called at the bottom the misfits in this scheme because there are always misfits. We may have some with us tonight. Who knows? Well, I know that we have at least one misfit with us tonight. And I'll take responsibility for myself. Because uh, you have Joel, which is immensely enigmatic and puzzling, even to the most erudite of Old Testament scholars. You have Obadiah. And nobody really knows where Obadiah comes from in terms of dating. So there's a lot of debate around that. And then you have Jonah. And of course, if you stop and think about it, the rest are all in some form of verse, uh, some form of oracle. And Jonah, of course, apart from his long psalm, when he's in the belly of a whale, and what else are you going to do when you're in the belly of a whale but pray as a psalm as long as you can? Uh, is, of course, a story, a parable, a narrative. What's it doing as a prophet then? They are the misfits. So what you have is, and you can work with this, you can change it yourself as you steep yourself in the texts. But what you have roughly is a prophetic pattern of loss and hope and judgment and well-being. That's the kind of the axis that runs through the minor prophets, often within individual books and across the, the book of the, the Twelve as a whole. And what I would ask you to note is that judgment is penultimate in the shaping of the texts. Judgment is penultimate in the shaping of the text. It is not the final word. I'm just going to leave that there because we've got other things to look at and think about together. All I would say at this point is that when you begin to approach the text like this, there are really profound issues at play under the surface of interpretation and of technically hermeneutics, of epistemology, of literary theory, and of questions that postmodernity raises even if you do not agree with the answers that post-modernity might give. So you're into a lot of really very interesting worlds of thought. So that's beginning to create some sort of coherence and integration. And then we move to calling them the Book of the Twelve with the, the kind of the strap line conversation or contested space. And this is really, I think, for us tonight, uh, 
maybe the heart of where we can begin to engage and think about the prophets and get some traction in these prophets where we can go to them and say, actually, you know, I want to engage with these 12 writers and what they have to say. So really, I would like to say that the Book of the Twelve is a conversation, at times an intense conversation, essentially centered on one question. That one question, I think, is what sort of community, what sort of community of faith are we? And what sort of community of faith do we want to become in the post-exilic world? And that's surely a question that resonates with all of us down the years. What sort of a community are we? What sort of a community do we want to become? But I do think that as time passes, in as far as we are accurately able to work out that timeline. But I think that as time passes, the texts become inscribed with indications of tension and fracture. Everything becomes hostile and contested. So at the conversational level, I think, and this really only struck me kind of late on in putting my thoughts in some sort of disorder. Uh, The conversation at a deep, deep level across the Book of the Twelve is about relationships. It is about coming out of that Hosea stuff, relationship with God. And how we understand God and who God is at the very, 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 very depths of God's being. And it is about relationships more generally. So our relationship to God and it is about our most intimate and closest relationships. Those who know us best, our strong points and our fallibility. So that's, again, Hosea and that relationship that we have uh, explored in terms of Hosea and his wife, Gomer. It's about relationships in the family. That comes out very strongly in Obadiah. Because Obadiah is really about tension between brothers. Israel, Jacob on one side, Edom and Esau on the other. And the great, great burden for Obadiah was, how as my brother could you stand at the crossroads and not lift a hand to help me when I was getting beaten up at the side of the road by every passing army? And out of that bitterness came. But it is about those relationships in a fractured family. 
And then it's about relationships among the nations. Because there's a huge emphasis on the nations in the book of the Twelve. And then there's the hard one. How do we relate to those that we view as enemies? That's there, embedded in the conversation in the book of the Twelve. What do we do with people that we hate and people that hate us, so we think? What do we do with those things? Part of the way they had the conversation was through uh, terms that sometimes seem very ordinary to us, but actually, as far as scholarship can help us, are actually quite technical terms. So one of these terms was the phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, in the prophetic literature, really was this sense that at some point in history, God would intervene when things were bad for Israel. And God would turn things around And Israel would be looked after and well-being would abound and Israel's enemies would be in deep trouble. Ultimately, a theology that says, as Bob Dylan might have sung, with God on our side. It had that conviction. God is on our side. The scholar that's done probably most work on this is a, is a German called Rolf Rentorf. But, and this is where the conversation dimension comes out in the Book of the Twelve, how the phrase is used is kind of differently nuanced in Zephaniah and Zechariah and Malachi. Zephaniah recognizes that Jerusalem will be caught up in this day of the Lord, but ultimately will benefit from it. The most significant voice in this, the most strident voice in this, is Nahum's voice. Nahum means comfort. And Nahum's comfort was the belief that no matter how bad things got, God was going to act in wrath, and in vengeance and in violence against Israel's enemies. Who have I left out in talking about the day of the Lord? Say it out loud, brother, say it out loud. Amos. Amos is that voice that doesn't go with the flow. Amos says, day of the Lord, people, Think about it like this. The day of the Lord for you people will not be light. It will be darkness. So be wary about longing for the day of the Lord. It's like you're out for a walk in the woods and you escape from a bear and a lion bites your head off. Or almost bites your head off and you stumble home And you get in through the door and you put your hand on the mantelpiece and a scorpion bites you. That's the day of the Lord, people. And you can imagine that 
other voices weren't exactly pleased with that. So you have the conversation going on. And then Amos allies that sense of warning to what you might call a decommissioning of the idea of singular election. What Amos was really saying is that you have become very complacent in your belief that you are God's people and God will always look out for you. The early part of Amos, Amos clearly references the Exodus. But then at the end, in this amazing verse, Amos 9, 7, says, you, let me, let me quote it to you if I can find it exactly, because it's very important. Oh, yes. This is what it says. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir? That language of bring up, Again, seems a very common phrase to us. But in the, the, the Israelite vocabulary, everybody knew that means Exodus. So, yeah, I, I did Exodus for you. But there's this implication in this little verse that God is at work elsewhere in the world doing Exodus for the Philistines who weren't exactly Israel's biggest buddies, and doing exodus for the Arameans. God is the God of exodus, and Isaiah, or Amos, is stretching the horizons of thought of the people, saying we don't know everywhere where God is at work. With that idea, let me read this to you. Rend your hearts, not your clothing. Joel said that. What does it make you think of? In the book of the Twelve, rend your hearts, not your clothing. Does that make anybody think? Does that send you in any direction? Can you think of an example of where people, I don't know, rended, is that the right word? Rended their hearts? rendered their hearts, tore their hearts, and not their clothing. That you would not expect to do that. Sean, you're too technical. Does it, does it not ring a bell with, with, uh, with Jonah? Where actually the people that you would not expect to respond positively to God's word, were told by the king of hated Assyria. You know, get on the sackcloth and ashes. Rend your hearts. So you have this strange sense that people are doing things in places where you not, would not expect them to do that. So we have this sense of election and the broadening of the horizon of thought relating to enemies. So you have the parable of Jonah, 
and the nature of God. Why did Jonah run? Why did Jonah run to the ends of the earth in the opposite direction? Why did Jonah do that? That's the answer being phoned in. (laughs) Jonah ran to the ends of the earth because he knew Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 and could quote them. He ran to the ends of the earth because he said, as Exodus 34, 6 and 7 say, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And Jonah was just twisted with bitterness and said, you see when you told me to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent, I knew that you were a compassionate God. And it ate me up because I knew that if those people responded, you would be compassionate and kind and generous to them. And my mindset was not for going along with that. What else does the book of the the, the Twelve encourage uh, conversation and debate about? Well, perhaps for our modern world, it encourages debate about a flourishing ecology. Go and look at some of the imagery. The end of Amos is about a flourishing creation. What do we need to do to get to that flourishing creation? What signals, what signs, what help is there within the book of the Twelve? So it's about our relationship to nature. The imagery is wonderful. The poetry is magnificent. It is about wine dripping from the hills. You you don't need to go to Tesco anymore. I don't know about you, Steve. Do you have to go with a mask on, because any of your parishioners see you, getting your Tesco's finest. You don't have to, you'll just be able to go out to the hills, out to Castlereagh Hills with a bucket. (laughs) You know? And also, where is God encountered? That becomes a very big conversation as we reach uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Is it back to the temple or is it more widespread than that? So that's the conversation I think that's going on in the book of the Twelve. And you know, as you steep yourself in the, in the texts and read them and see the allusions, I hope that you're able to add to that. There are other conversations there as well. So what we have is minor prophets, major connections. The big three and the big picture. The big three are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Here's the way I've come to understand it. Jeremiah was an outsider to Jerusalem, to the whole Jerusalem apparatus and operation. He condemned the institutions of state. The temple 
and the palace and all they stood for. He was subversive and he was seditious. And those in power wanted rid of him. They wanted him eliminated. They wanted him dead. They wanted him rubbed out. Here's an interesting little thing. Do you know who saved him? Do you know who saved him? The elders saved him. Three cheers for elders. Three cheers for good elders. The elders saved him because they knew what was to become a part of the book of the twelve. And they had remembered it. And they went up to those in central power and they said, hold on a minute before you get that rope too tightly around Brother Jeremiah's neck. They said, now hold on a minute. Didn't Micah of Morasheth say worse things than Jeremiah has about the temple? Didn't he say that the temple would become like a plowed field and a ruined waste? And he wasn't attacked. And Jeremiah lived. But he was an outsider to all of that Jerusalem Davidic apparatus. Ezekiel, on the other hand, was a quintessential insider. He was a priest. He loved the temple with a passion. His focus was on the temple and on holiness and on regulating the clean and the unclean and the pure and the impure and on categorizing and policing the boundaries to ensure in his mind and his understanding of spiritual reality, blessing. The temple was where heaven touched earth and everything had to be done with purity. And at the end of the exile, what he wanted was to get back to Jerusalem and to get his feet under the table in the temple again, and for the old order to start up again. That's what he wanted. And these ideas of Ezekiel are carried on in the post-exilic world by Haggai, by Zechariah, by Malachi. They had other ideas as well, but they were priestly and they were focused on the temple and getting things up and running again the way they had been. So there was in this mindset and this approach division. There was a division between what is called the Gola, the returnees from exile, who regarded themselves as the holy seed better than those who had remained the people of the land. And then there was the issue of foreign wives. When it came to Ezra and Nehemiah, who regarded Israelites who had married foreigners as impure and a problem. And there were purity panels 
at which people were summoned to appear. And there was the sundering of families. And there was violence. Nehemiah went about. And this is why it would have been better to be clean shaven. And if you happened to be an Israelite and you'd married a foreigner, Nehemiah would tug your beard. It's there in the text. You know? And then you have Isaiah. Isaiah, I think, was an insider who became an outsider and kept on going in his thought. Because the, the tradition that Isaiah engendered in the latter part of that magnificent prophecy became inclusive and transgressive of old ways of doing things and questioned the received texts and theology somewhere close to the heart of all of that, you had the, the, the wonderful text in Isaiah, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, behold, I am doing a new thing, it is springing up. Do you see it? Do you see it? You've never seen the likes of this before. Do you see it? It's different from what has been before. Do you see it? Now, scholars will argue and debate uh, about how far you were supposed to forget and what the forgetting referred to, but it is there. And then, of course, you have Isaiah 56 and the inclusion of both eunuchs and foreigners. So that is Isaiah really going head-to-head -head with... Uh, Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1 of that chapter in Deuteronomy says, anybody with uh, damaged testicles can't be included in the family of faith. And then the next verses deal with how you're not to touch a foreigner with a barge pole. So Isaiah is saying, well, actually, we may need to rethink that. And he's going head to head with Ezekiel because Ezekiel in chapter 44 and verses 6 to 14 condemns foreigners too. And then you should take a look at Isaiah 19 and verses 19 to 25. It's this incredible series of verses where Isaiah senses, envisions, talks about people springing up in Egypt of all places to worship God. Talks about how there will be a roadway from Egypt right around what older scholarship used to call the Fertile Crescent to Assyria. So the two big powers. And people will be able to travel freely from one part to the other in passing. Note that that highway today would pass right through Gaza. This is a vision of peace and of a 
a different world beyond reordered imperial power. And then at the end, it says this. The Lord Almighty will bless them all. Egyptians, Israelites, Assyrians. Saying, blessed be Egypt my people. Assyria my handiwork. And Israel my inheritance. Terms of election and endearment that had been exclusively applied to Israel are now being applied to Egypt and to Assyria. It's kind of incredible. And that kind of gives you that bigger picture of how Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the traditions that they engendered loom over and interact with the book of the twelve. If I say to you Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 what do you say? What are the great visions Steve? You know it. Of course you know it. It's about the nation streaming to Jerusalem. And it's about plow. It's about spears into pruning hooks. Spears into the instruments. Oh my! Well, the thing is that in the conversation, Joel takes exactly the opposite view. He says, you see those uh, farm implements? Get them fired up and in the furnace and turned into weapons. So you have all of that going on. It's absolutely right. Joel's wonderful. Well, I'm not going to say Joel's wonderful, of course. Uh, he's there. And we've got, to, we've got to make something of that conversation and what is going on there. I do have some other things to say, and we can maybe do those quickly. But I do want to, to get what you are thinking. So we'll go to that question. And if we have time, we'll come back to the hermeneutical genome and the reading community. It's good. I may have to come back for the hermeneutical genome. Uh, the question is, in light of our time tonight, how can the Book of the Twelve help us in handling issues in the modern church and in the modern world? You have know, been listening tonight. You may have gotten some pointers. So you can talk to your neighbors, and we'll take five minutes and then kind of shout some things out afterwards. I mean, can they? You might want to say, actually, no help to me at all. And that would be fine. You can read how you read. I don't have an issue with that. But might there be something there?
So listen, 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 people. I hope that that is the beginning of a conversation and not the end. Do, what do people want to call out? Has anything struck you as helpful for handling issues in the modern church and world? Call things out if you have anything to call out. I don't mind what it is. Really what I'm saying is that at the end of uh, the period of time, as far as we can determine it, that the, 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 the minor prophets were at work, what you had was the, the, the reforms brought in by Ezra and Nehemiah, which were very exclusive and very damaging divided families. It was the purity agenda of Ezekiel and the, or the priestly tradition. And Isaiah is saying in that big conversation, actually, I think that we should include more people, eunuchs, foreigners. You can see the obvious connection to the foreigners, you know. And then what I'm saying is that that's part of the, the conversation that was going on in the book of the Twelve, where part of the, the conversation was, you know, our enemies, we don't like them. We're going to keep them at a distance. We're going to hope that God punishes them. But then you have Jonas saying, well, listen, guys, let me tell you a story. And it's about God dealing kindly with the enemy and saying, maybe you want a, a mercy from God that you're not willing to extend to other people. And part of the conversation was, you believe that you're elect? Well, Amos says, God was also doing Exodus in Philistine, Philistia, and in Kaftor. God is that God. And we don't know where God is at work in the world. We know that God has worked for us, and we know our relationship to God. But is God at work beyond the, the boundaries of our understanding and our knowing? Does that make sense? Does that help you? Okay. What about other folks? <laughs> David. Yeah. Great question. Great question. Let me ask you a question, all of you, first of all. <laughs> know where you're coming from? Know where you're coming from? This is. Uh, 
I never under, I never, I never knew the word sword drill growing up. But every, when I studied in America, everybody knew sword drill. You know. So let me ask you this: How many times is uh, how many times is Ezra mentioned in the New Testament? How many times is Nehemiah mentioned in the New Testament? What? Absolutely none. That's just that's just a bit of trivia for you. But one of the things that I would say that this helps us to do is it helps us to get to the story of Jesus. What was Jesus' first sermon about in Luke's gospel? It really was about the day of the Lord, wasn't it? He was referencing back to Isaiah 61, which was the, the day of the Lord's vengeance. So it's in, in that same family of thought, the day of the Lord. And then he goes and he spoils what was a magnificent sermon in the eyes of those who were listening by saying, do you remember the widow of Zarephath? Well, there were lots and lots and lots of hungry Israelite widow women. God went to a foreigner. And do you remember the story of Naaman? the Syrian general, with his flaky skin. Well, there were lots and lots and lots and lots of Israelites with flaky skin. They didn't get healed. So there are connections between some of this stuff and what Jesus was doing and pushing the boundaries, the horizons of thought and inclusion. And that's when they lost it with him and they wanted him off the top of the hill. And as Luke puts it, he walked on through them for the time being. So there's something deeply challenging about Jesus. Uh, the other one that I would reference is, I'm, I'm going from memory now. I know the story. It's the story of what we often call the conversion of Cornelius. You know the story in Acts, Acts chapter 10. It's probably more better referred to as the, 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 the conversion of Peter. Because Peter has got more to get his head around than Cornelius does. And it's the, this is something that's, that's really struck, struck me this past year, of a year and a half. Acts 10, verse 14. After the sheep comes down and all of the animals are there and the Lord God says to Peter take and eat and Peter says Peter says surely not Lord Peter and the Lord are in the conversation and Peter says surely not Lord now, sometimes we, we, can, can, we can trivialize that story because we think it's about, you know, those Jews, they didn't even know what to eat and they didn't know that they could eat anything for heaven's sakes. And we're Christians and we're free and we can eat crabs and lobsters now. It's actually, I think, and you may disagree and we can 
have a conversation about that. It is actually about beginning to deconstruct all of the, the purity and the holiness code. It's really deep stuff. And that's what's challenging Peter. And I think that sometimes in the church, rather than being pulled up short and going back to the texts and kind of exploring them and pondering and praying and wrestling and talking to one another in community, we can say, absolutely not, Lord. Does that help? That's the beginning of an answer. No. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, and that gets you to the contested space where it's maybe not a, a helpful thing. You know? So those are conversations that, you know, should you want to, uh, you can take forward. Because there are those steps. But the conversation is there. And really, one of the things that I would say is that the, the, Bible, the Bible is plural. And it speaks with different voices. And there are different traditions. And we've got to negotiate our way through that. And, you know, they all have something to bring to us, perhaps negatively sometimes, and say, we can't go there anymore. You know? I mean, who wants to go and say, Joshua, good blueprint for international relations. Do you want me to do this genome stuff very quickly? See where we're at? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. You are here, every one of you, because you have whether you know it or not, a hermeneutical gene. There is something in your DNA that has predisposed you towards learning about the Bible, wrestling with the Bible. And somewhere in all of that, I am certain that someone has opened the scriptures for you as a child, as an adult, as a teenager, and something has grasped your imagination and has been part of your relationship and a living relationship with Jesus. And that is wonderful. You have a hermeneutical gene, a way of interpreting the Bible. It may have stayed pretty much the same, or it may have changed over the years and developed and grown. But you have that. That is, I would assume, why you're here tonight. It's not particularly to listen to me. It's because you have a hermeneutical gene. And we all need a reading community. We all need other people around us that don't necessarily agree with us, but we can create a space where we can respect one another. And we can say, look, this is, this is where I get this stuff from in the Bible. When as far as I know, I'm not making it up. It's there. These are the texts. I'm trying to be faithful. Paragraph 11 of our code is vastly important.
vastly important because it says it's our duty and our right to read the Bible. And if we come to a mind about what it is saying to us, it is, it is like a Jeremiah having the fire in the bones. We've got to tell people what we're thinking. We need a community. And we need a community that is not based on fear and violence. I want to introduce you very quickly, and I could talk a long time, I could talk for many hours about my community. This is the person that got me started on Old Testament studies. Uh, Sue Chen Head, I mentioned about Micah 6-8, inside our rings, my wife and my ring. Tian Hen was a poet, Presbyterian minister, past moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Taiwan, a prisoner of conscience, and an Old Testament scholar. And he got me started in really engaging with the Old Testament. He passed away in 2015, tragically, and much too early. Walter Brueggemann. I first read Walter Brueggemann by oil lamp in Malawi when the church had seen fit to send me there. They wanted to get rid of me even then. <laughs> send you far away and into exile. It was wonderful. What a wonderful place. Reading Brueggemann by oil lamp. Brueggemann brings together word and world in creative, imaginative, generative ways that just take your breath away, help you to see things that you'd never seen in the Bible before. And that enriches us and deepens our involvement in the life of Jesus, which is seeking justice. What I always like about Walter is his absolute commitment to the church over and above his commitment to the academy. Brueggemann taught in two places, in Eden in St. Louis, Missouri, and in Columbia Theological Seminary, one of the PCUSA teaching seminaries. He could have gone to any university in North America or around the world. He wanted to be involved in shaping ministers. That was his passion. Uh, and he was always critical of both conservatives and liberals in their reading of the Bible. He said, you know, the problem with conservatives is whatever text you give them, they know what the answer is before they really sit with the text and look at the strangeness and follow the language and place it in uh, the overall context of Scripture. And the problem with liberals is that they get very embarrassed, particularly about the Old Testament and all of the strange, alien, bizarre texts, and they want to move past them. He said that what you've got to do is you've got to enter, and he borrowed from Karl Barth in this, the strange world of the Bible, and know that this is not our natural world. And you're going to spend years trying to find your way around. So, and this is very important. And remember this, I hope. Doctrine 
is always, in relationship to the text, a second-order move. By that I mean we have this amazing text entrusted to us. And then we begin to draw conclusions, insights from it. But that is second order. It has to be. And he was always generous. If I were to put my tongue very, very deeply in my cheek, I would say that Walter is the second best Old Testament scholar that I know. Severino Croato is the first. Incredible man from Argentina. Uh, he was a member of the foundational generation of liberation theologians. So people like Gustavo Gutierrez, John Sabrino, Leonardo Boff, Clodovis Boff, and Juan Luis Segundo. Juan Luis Segundo's big idea was, or one of his ideas was, the idea of the hermeneutical circle. That you understand reality, and then you move on to understand the text, and then you understand the action that flows from that. And for that generation, they said, what you must always do is begin with social reality, the reality where you live. And uh, Severino would say, no. He said, you can start with the text, and then you can move to those other uh, points in the, in the circle of interpretation. He taught uh, Pope Francis when Pope Francis was a young man. Uh, and then he moved to the progressive Protestant seminary in Buenos Aires. And that kept him safe when uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, who became, of course, Pope Benedict, was trying to purify the church and bring it back to a kind of a, an older form of doctrine. What I found with Severino at one point was that he was carrying in his head huge portions of the scroll of Isaiah in Hebrew. He just knew that stuff. Incredible. Before I met him, I bought one of his books. It was uh, entitled Biblical Hermeneutics. It's about 80 pages long. I'm still trying to understand it. And that's 20, that's true, that's 20 years ago. It is so dense in what it says. Uh, he told me that he wrote it in 10 days. He had been given a, a little house by a friend up in the, the mountains in Argentina. And he said he went up and he just wrote this stuff. One of the, the ideas, and I'll share this with you because I think it, it, it's, it's helpful. It's helpful to me anyway, and it may be to you. He said, you know, when it comes to hermeneutics, the movement is always from open
there are always some people that take umbrage at what you say. <laughs> he says the movement is always from open to closed. And what he said was, you know, when you've got the text, you've got everything from Genesis to Revelation, and you've got the, the minor prophets, and you've got all of that strange material. You have a, a, an ocean of text to swim in. But if you're going to make some sense of it, you've got to begin to limit that to get a coherent reading. And he said, what you're going to use is you're going to use uh, insights from history to help you understand what's going on. And you're going to use insights perhaps from anthropology to help you understand how people were thinking back then. And you're going to use, because it is a literary text, literary theory in the best way that you can. You're going to use all of the scholarship. And you're going to use your own context. And you're going to be honest with yourself. And then you're going to present a reading and you're going to share it with your reading community and say, this is what I've come up with. What do you think? And they might say, Severino, you've lost yourself. We don't understand what you're saying. But you have to do that and move from open to closed. Everybody does that. Liberals do that, radicals do that, fundamentalists do that, conservatives do that. Everybody does it. We're all in the same boat, and the movement is from open to closed. Book of the Twelve. Amos was the first, the first of the writing prophets. And he had the, the open mind to see God could be at work in positive ways, in exodus ways, with the Philistines, with the Arameans. And then other voices in the book of the Twelve that came later said, couldn't possibly be right. So they began to close it down. What some people call Third Isaiah, so all of those wonderful passages, the lyrical passages of hope and inclusion, came before Ezra and Nehemiah. Isaiah was more open-minded, in a sense, than Ezra and Nehemiah were. Ezra and Nehemiah tried to close things down, from open to close. He also said that there's one type of reading, and he was talking about in the Catholic tradition, he said there's one type of reading that is not permissible. And he said that is concordism. Concordism was taking the Bible and making everything harmonious. Creating a smooth, even surface and denying the depths and the great uh, movements under the surface. In the interests of gender balance, I include my very good friend Kathleen O'Connor. Uh, just a wonderful person, a wonderful human being, a wonderful Jeremiah scholar, lamentation scholar. An amazing piece of work on how uh, lamentations can be used really in post-conflict societies and as a, a way of addressing trauma. I also mentioned Kathleen because she was the first Catholic to be employed on staff as a member of the faculty at Columbia Theological Seminary. 
which is one of the, I believe, nine PCUSA teaching centers. And that would have been 19, 1995, and that's when Kathleen and I met. So there was a seminary that was saying, you know, we know our tradition, but at this point in history, actually, we could employ a Catholic. We're on our own journeys. And listen, you have been more than generous to me in, in the time that you've given me. Uh, and those are thoughts that I hope are somewhat structured and somewhat interesting about how we might begin to, to address the Book of the Twelve. So what we really need to do now, 12 books and 6. Everybody could read 12. Obadiah is only a handful of verses. But we go back and read the Book of the Twelve and see where are the resonances for us. Where do we see it fitting together? Because the thing is, there isn't one reading. There are many readings. And we can all have a voice in that and say, how does this propel us on our faith journey?